In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. To talk with a Samaritan woman and to understand it, we need to understand what is a Samaritan, like, to begin with, right? Is that what a lot of us, I didn't know what it was till a couple of years ago, actually, like, what it, what it really was. So, we know that the whole Old Testament, after the, the kingdom of Israel is set up, right, is that God is constantly asking the Israelites to keep their covenant, right, and that if they don't, that he'll forsake them. Right? And so they have this long back and forth, and every time he says, Khalas, I'm, I'm leaving, he doesn't. Right? And then they'll like, they'll collect themselves for like a little bit, um, and then they go back, and usually even worse than before. Right? Really like trying the patience of God until finally God says, You know what? Like, I tried with you. Um, you don't want me, no problem. Like, I respect your will. Um, see whether or not you can be successful on your own or not. So we know that eventually eventually the the Jews are taken captive, right? So the, there's a civil war in Israel before this happens. You have the northern kingdom, right, of Israel and the southern kingdom of, of, of Judea. That's where the Jews got the name Jews from, right? Are those from Judea? And they all are taken off captive. So when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, okay, of Israel, the capital of Israel in the northern kingdom was Samaria. All right, that was the name of the city. And the Assyrians um, deported almost all of the Jews um, from the northern kingdom, but they left some still in the city. And these people intermarried with the Assyrians. Okay, so now you had a mixed marriage, um, but these Israelites um, they emigrated, like they, they went all around, these ones that were intermarried. And so they, they formed a very distinct identity. They decided they wanted to keep their religion, okay, but they also felt loyalty to where they were um, and to their marriages and all of these. So the Samaritans still worshipped Yahweh. They still used the, the first five books of the Bible just like the Jews would. But because of their ethnicity, right, like to the Jews, like how could you like flirt with the enemy? Right? These are people who took us over and you're joining them. It would be to us today like saying the Muslims occupied Egypt and took it over. How could you go right, and, and, and join forces with them? That's how we would, we would feel ethnically right? and religiously. Like Both of them were being affected. So from an ethnic perspective, from a religious perspective, they were seen as treacherous traitors right? of how dare they do this. And this was why the Jews hated so much, like specifically the Samaritans, right? They saw them as this absolutely disgusting group of people. Um, so basically to the Jews, the Samaritans were heretics, right? That's what they, they saw them as. And Samaritans were the adversaries of Judah. And sometimes the Samaritans, we always talk about the Jews having loathing towards the Samaritans, but it was mutual, right? Like the, the hating wasn't just one way, it was, it was a, a both ways. And the Jews were uh, extremely malicious against the Samaritans this is uh, what one person wrote, is they looked upon them as having no part in the resurrection, excommunicated and cursed them, anathema, by the sacred name of God, by the glorious writings of the tables, and by the curse of the upper and lower houses of judgment with this law, that no Israel eat of anything that is Samaritans, for it is as if he should eat swine's flesh. This is from the rabbinical texts, right? These were the, the texts that the Jews used to govern themselves. So that, that's how seriously they took any partaking. So. I'm saying this to realize that it was anathema for them to touch something, 
belonging to a Samaritan, let alone to talk to them, right? Which is something important to know when we look at what our Lord did, right? When he went to talk to the Samaritan woman. So the Samaritans were heretics with conviction, okay? They, they were very happy about their heresy um, because they saw themselves as descendants also of Jacob, right? So they viewed themselves as the rightful sons and heirs of Jacob and the real members of the nation of the Israelites. It sounds a lot like the Eastern and Oriental today. After the captivity, right, um, was ended, they decided we're going to build our own temple, right? So it's like, you have your temple in Judea, well, ha ha, I have my own uh, temple here in Gerizim, Mount Gerizim, right, of, of the Samaritans. And it was in direct competition with the temple in Jerusalem. And we even see a little hint at this conflict in another story in the Gospels that we often just completely overlook. In Luke 9, um, there's a scene where our Lord and his disciples are prevented. They wanted to go through Samaria, but the Samaritans don't allow them to go through because they knew that they were going, it says, for they were headed, they were faced towards the temple, right? Once they knew that they're going to their competition, they're going to the temple in Judea, like, no, you can't come from here. Right, you have to take the long way, and it was a long way because when you're going from uh, Judea in the south to um, Galilee or Nazareth in the in the north, right? Samaria is this like blob in the middle, right? So the natural way is to just go straight, right? But because of this, people were forced to go like this diagonal way around. So it really was was difficult. So like I said, yeah, Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, Samaria, Samaria in the in the middle. Um, and the Jews would often take a route that was longer because they didn't want to see them, but also because it was also known sometimes that Samaritans would attack Jews um, who took that route. So I think it was like it's a mutual war, right, of, of, of hatred. So it's in this context that we see the importance of what our Lord is doing, right? Is that our Lord is, is going not for a chance encounter, right? He's going for an intentional encounter with this woman who is at the well, right? He's taking this route, he's going at a very difficult time, he's walking in, in the in high sun, right? Like in, at noon, right? It says that the story takes place at the sixth hour, right? Which is noon. So it's hot, right? Those of us who have been to the, the Middle East or Eastern culture, right? Even in Eastern Europe, that's your siesta time, right? People don't go out during that time because of the sun. You come home, you have like your main meal of the day, you sleep for a couple of hours, and then the nightlife begins at night when the sun has gone down. So people don't go out during this time. And that was the culture then, even as it is um, now. So he's going right now to a place in a most inopportune time, right? At his own expense, physically, mentally, socially, culturally, religiously, on every single um, le level. So I'm not going to retell the story, and like I know you all know it, what I want to do so that I don't just do the same sermon as before, is look at some of the things we can learn from the Samaritan woman and some of the things that we can learn um, from, from our Lord, right, in this encounter. So if you look at the Samaritan woman, she's coming at noon, which is not normal time, okay, because socially speaking, they'd be there first thing in the morning and they're going to come at night. Nobody's going to go in the middle of the heat to do hard physical labor. So she's leaving at this time because she's a social outcast, right, for the life she's living. And she doesn't want, probably, interaction with the people, right? She doesn't want anyone to, to put her down or, or even without saying something to make her feel like she's a reject for the things that she's doing wrong. It's also clear that she's poor, 
okay? Because if she wasn't, she'd be sending her servant to do this work for her. That was the norm, right? So the fact that she's going herself means she's not a woman of, 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 of wealth. Even from whatever lifestyle she's living, she didn't inherit anything. Things are not... She has a hard life, basically. She's had five husbands, um, and the word that's used for, like, like in this text in the original language, it's not clear whether they were five husbands or just five men, right, that, that she had. So it wasn't sure if it was legal or not. But even if they were marriages, that was breaking the law, <laughs> okay, because the Jewish culture only allowed three, um, like, times, where you could try three times and you if they all died or something happened, then <laughs> enough, right? Then, then <laughs> God's trying to tell you something. Um, it wasn't written in the law. It was a tradition um, that they had, which would mean that even then she was like transgressing the social customs, right? If not the religious ones. And like I said, it's possible that they're all lovers and not husbands. And apparently our Lord cares about this. So when our Lord starts talking to her and she says, she brings up that point, once... He starts saying, bring your husband, right? She says, I don't have a husband, right? And then he goes and makes that comment, like, you're right, you had five, right? But then she deflects, right? Her response is like, hold on, let me talk about something here. Your people, right, she's not comfortable, right, talking about this aspect of her life, understandably. That's one way of looking. Others will see it as, as in a different way, we'll come to that. So she's like, okay, wait a minute, here's a religious guy, apparently, okay, um, because he's telling me stuff, right, about myself, that she perceives him to possibly be a prophet. Um, but she deflects the conversation by talking about the Jewish claims of where to worship. So possibly she's uncomfortable, possibly she's genuinely asking. Either way, our Lord engages her in that conversation, right? He doesn't rebuff her. He doesn't say, and I'm not talking about the temple right now. I'm talking about your husband's status, right? Instead, he's like, no problem, we can talk about the temple, <laughs> right? So he, he engages her. In fact, when, when they have this ongoing conversation, I'm going to be jumping all over the place because right now I'm focusing on her and then on Christ. He doesn't even rebuff her. He even confirms to her that he's the Messiah. Right? This is something that he rarely did in his ministry. Most people were guessing. Right? Most people are like, is he? Isn't he? Who are you? Right? Whereas with her, he says very plainly, I that is speaking to you, I am he. Right? Like completely open. Which shows that something for sure in her was genuine. And it might be because the Samaritans have different expectations of the Jews, right? They were, they didn't see the Messiah as much of a political figure as the Israelites did, right? The Israelites saw the, the Messiah who was supposed to come is going to make us a, a strong political nation again. Whereas the Samaritans had more of a tendency to see the Messiah as someone who's going to come to restore proper worship, which was actually a more spiritual um, way of looking at it, and so maybe this was why our Lord um, told her that yes, he was, it was him. And she thinks that the living water that he speaks about, right, because they have this whole conversation about water, right, and he's like, I'll give you the living water. The word for living water in the language doesn't necessarily mean water that's alive, it means moving water, right, so it means like spring water, like something coming down a mountain, but not like still water. Still water Right, has a higher chance of diseases, has a higher chance. It's, it's good water. The, the better water is, is, is the living water. So she doesn't get it. And uh, she doesn't know what the living water that our Lord means requires you to get rid of the muddy water, right? which is the still water. And that's why our Lord tells her to get her husband. Right? Like this living water, 
means like you have to get rid of this this bad stuff that you have. If you want the right kind, right, get rid of this bad kind and do it. And that's why he turns her to repentance, right? So he draws attention to what is not right, right? And says, hey, why don't you go get your husband and we'll talk about this water business, right? And then it's like, oh, I don't have a husband and they, they engage. And this discomfort, right, that we, we mentioned when, when he brings up the husband situation, makes her talk about something else. And this is something that we see a lot, right? When we're uncomfortable with something we are doing wrong, we'll be very quick to talk about, let me tell you what I think is messed up in the whole system, right? Like, it's like, I think you should fix this. No, you know, hold on, before I fix this, sure, I can fix that, but let me tell you, right? And then we'll sit there talking about everything that is um, wrong, why someone else is messed up, especially the church. When someone is exposed for doing something wrong or a weakness is shown, the first thing the person often does is say where the church failed him, where someone was bad and caused him to sin, why someone that should have been there for him wasn't and caused him to do that wrong thing, right? This is what she does, right? She starts out by saying, you people, right? It's immediately like the finger out, you people say, etc. So she turns her lack of worship into a physical problem, right? So there's an improper worship, and I say, no, 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 let me tell you why I don't do that. There's a physical problem here. You're saying this temple, they're saying this temple, who knows? So you know what? The solution is no temple, right? Or like the solution is whatever behavior that I'm, that I'm doing. But our Lord responds, right? And he tells her, it's not about the building, right? The earth isn't big enough to contain God, right? Let alone the building, right? This isn't, this isn't what he did. The building points towards heaven, but the buildings are not heaven. Right? And that's why he says to her, God is a spirit. And those who worship him worship in spirit and truth. God is not reduced to buildings. Right? And he says that lots, right? Even with King Solomon, right, when he wants to build a temple, actually his dad, when King David first proposed the temple, God says to him, I lived in a tent. Right? When I when I first visited you, I was in a tent and I didn't ask you for a building. So don't worry about my house. Right? I'm more worried about X, Y, and Z. You're not even gonna build me my house. You can save the money if you want. Your kid, your kid will make me a building, right? But he turns them towards the meaning of the thing instead of the thing itself first. So not living rightly because of some architectural or physical problem, okay, is insufficient reason. Proper worship begins with the state of the heart. He doesn't renounce the buildings, right? He doesn't say, I can't believe they made me buildings, right? But he simply points them to the higher meaning. Um, that it isn't the starting or ending point. Right? It's internal, that is. And she doesn't seem to be fully convinced, we're not sure, but she has this response of, yeah, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll let us know. Right? Almost to be like, that's a nice opinion, but you're just some guy. Right? And so, when he comes, he'll tell us the proper worship. That's why I'm saying that they had a different understanding of the Messiah. And that's when Christ says, well, I am the Messiah. Right? And then it's like, oh, wait a minute, this is a big claim. Right? And that's what causes her to be like, okay, now this is a big deal. And then she runs to the city and she goes, there's a guy saying he's the Messiah, and he might be, right? He told me things that he couldn't have known, right? I perceive that this man is a prophet. So she's now had this um, experience with, with him that is enough to get her talking, right? It's enough to bring her to other people and say, I've had this experience that is not normal. And something is completely different. I need you all to come and see. Whatever it was was so big of a deal that the reason why she wasn't seeing the people because she was afraid of the people or social or whatever, apparently she got over that, 
right? Like, so this was clearly something very compelling for her to get over her social status, right? And perceptions of her, because she put that all on the line, right? Like, why of all people would the harlot woman, sorry, right, be the one to meet God? Or the one to meet the Messiah? They didn't know that the Messiah was going to be God, right? But they, that, that was who he spoke to. So things that we can learn from the Samaritan woman, if we meditate on her a little bit, is number one is sin causes isolation, right? It's actually a very scary and lonely place. It causes both physical and psychological anguish. This woman, because of it, right, she's socially isolated. I'm sure that she probably didn't love being alone all the time, right? I'm sure she didn't love being the only one at the well in the middle of the day, right? All she has to comfort her is whatever lover she has. And let's be honest, I bet she wasn't satisfied from that. She had five of them, right? So she knew that this isn't permanent, right? Otherwise, there wouldn't be such a cycling through of it, right? So she knows whatever romance I'm in is going to have an end, right? So this causes isolation. And a lot of us, when we do something wrong, we do isolate ourselves, right? We don't want to be around those um, who will bring us to repentance, right? We don't want to be around anybody who will convict us, even without words, or simply by doing the right thing around us. I'm guilty of this. Many of us do it, right? We'll avoid the person who will most help us when we're addicted to sin, and yet at the same time we hate it, right? We hate the state that we're in because we feel um, cut off. This woman is at the well by herself. She probably craved the attention of others or the company of others. Maybe she felt good in her romance, but outside of romance hours, um, there's a reality of suffering. And that suffering was being born alone, right? Which is a more intense suffering, right? Is feeling that you are completely alone um, in that. The isolation meant that she didn't even have community support for repentance. And that was her own fault, right? This wasn't the community being jerks per se completely. They might have had their faults. Not anyone else's. So the isolation meant even isolation from the religious community because she knew that what she did was the opposite of right. So she felt not only deprived of community, but she also felt deprived of God. And what we sometimes don't realize when we isolate ourselves in sin is that we're deprived of knowledge that would help us, right? So it's not just being away from the physical building, just away from, from physical people, right? But it's the knowledge that might have received. Maybe there's something someone's going to say that would explain to me why I am what I am, right? Maybe someone's going to say something that would pierce my heart to say, oh, I, I need to, to change this, right? Is that if I, if I cut off all the sources of knowledge, then I now will only see myself. And if I only see myself, then I'm only going to listen to myself, right? So this isolation is, is very hazardous, right? Not just from the, the psychological and the social and, and all of that, but even from the perspective of the ability to change. Having no contact with anybody is, is dangerous. And it's clear that she did have some care for this knowledge, right? As some truth remains, remained in her heart, and she knew stuff about religion, right? Like she knew about this whole temple issue between the Jews and the Samaritans, right? We sometimes think someone living in sin is an idiot, right? Spiritually, where it's like, where we, like in the church, like all of us will have the sense of like, if someone were to come in today with this situation, we would be like, don't worry about that. Today, how about you just worry about the fact that you're so wrong, 
right? And, like this assumption that they're ignorant on anything religious, where it's like, I, I wasn't like born today, right? I might be doing something wrong, but I'm aware that it's wrong, right? Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking to you about it, right? But we sometimes think that about people. So even in the state that she was in, clearly something in her held on to some form of religion, um, and that's why she has something to talk about, and our Lord engaged her, okay? Not only did He engage her, He told her stuff that the disciples didn't even know yet, right? They didn't know this whole, there's going to be no temple, neither here nor there, right? That's not something that He told them, right? He allowed her to converse and reveal to her, even though she's a so-called sinner, Right? Anyone who's earnest in their desire to talk to God, he will respond. Second thing, don't make excuses. Right? Take responsibility for your sins, myself included. Right? Is that we can't put the blame on other people. She did make some excuses with the Lord, but for the most part she actually seems to have accepted responsibility. Something very admirable about her. Because I'm not looking for just wrongs that she did to learn from, I'm looking for the rights as well that she did. Um, she doesn't lie about her situation. Right? She doesn't cover it up. She doesn't try and cover it with some fake story. She doesn't give like a, a, a long narrative of why she did, why she, what she did. She didn't, right? It was just, yes, this is what I did, um, without the excuses. She's very genuine. And she even tells the Lord, like, she's shocked that he would want her to serve him. She's very, like, very frank, right? She's like, how on earth could you tell me this, right? She's not intimidated. She's not in the state of, like, fake reverence. Right? She just looks at him, she's in shock. How can this Jew talk to me? Right? And she says it to him. She's like, how is it that you, being a Jew, are talking to me, a woman, and asking to use my stuff? Right? Like that, that's her immediate response. And I, I think that this genuineness is very admirable in the Samaritan woman. And I'm sure that sincerity is what our Lord saw in her, right? that it was genuine, which is why our Lord responded so well to her. Right? He didn't tell her off and be like, wow, you're rude. Right? And be like, I guess, right? Because in other places, he told the disciples, shake the dust off of your shoes and leave. Right? So that was an option. Right? But with her in particular, he was like, no, I'll talk. Right? I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Don't worry about me. Um, with others that were insincere, he called them out on their insincerity. Right? Like with a lot of the Pharisees. When they were insincere, he didn't engage them. He didn't tell them anything. He's like, you don't want to know. Right? You're just setting me up. You want to test me? Not going to play your games. So he responds based on the sincerity of the heart. Third thing, she wanted the truth. How many of us, when fighting with friends, with our spouses, with our children, with our parents, with our friends, do not allow ourselves to be vulnerable? How many of us are actively not listening to whatever the other person is saying, right, when we're in the middle of um, a fight? Because we just want to be sure that we're, we're right. Right? How many of us, no matter what the other person says, don't listen to the possibility that we could be wrong or mistaken or misunderstanding? Right? Versus waiting for the other person to finish their sentence so that you can disagree. Right? It's like, you're done? Okay, let me tell why you're wrong. Right? Nothing went in because you were waiting for your opportunity to tell the other person why they um, are wrong. Maybe we have a wrong technique in doing something. Maybe we have a weaker technique than someone else in doing something. Maybe we're evaluating a situation wrong. Maybe we have unknowingly caused injury or harm to someone and someone else is trying to tell us that, but we close our ears and our minds to the possibility of our being wrong. Not just in opinions, but behaviors. Right? We often do this most with those who we are closest to. 
if my mom wants something, I might dismiss it as, oh, that's my mom. She always thinks that or does that or says that, right? It'll be our, our immediate uh, thing. It's no big deal. She's dramatic, right? Someone sees an interaction between a husband and wife, like, oh, don't worry. He's always grumpy. He's always grumpy. Like, don't worry about it. And it's like, but you are rude. No, 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 no. That's the only way it works with him. I know, right? I've known him my whole life, right? And, and I'm closing my, my mind to the idea that maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe my behavior is why that person is doing what they're doing, right? And if I'm completely closed and not listening, we have a problem. Whereas this woman wanted the truth, right? She was listening to his response. She wasn't just waiting for him to finish to tell him why he's wrong. She's asking sincerity. What is the truth about this matter? Do we actively listen to the truth um, or not? And this is the difference between dialogue and debate. Okay, debate is I need to tell you why you're wrong, I need to win, right? Dialogue is I'm open to understanding and hearing what it is that you have to say, that what you have to say is something of value, right, to, to this conversation. Um, she didn't debate the Lord, she, she dialogued. Um, which showed that even in sin, Right? You should want to get better. This is something a lot of people don't do. Um, the woman had something in her that wanted to leave the life that she was living. Something in her was still very much alive. If she was set on her ways, she would have shut down the doors of communication right away. Right? She would have stopped the conversation. She wouldn't volunteer any information. Even when our Lord said what He said, like, go get your husband, um, she could have just gone home and been like, no, that's nice, I'm not going back. Right? She'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'll go get him, right? and just took off. Right? She didn't have to volunteer that there was something else um, going on. Many of us do that. We'll hear a Bible passage or a sermon that makes us aware of something wrong that we do, and we'll say something like, that's true, you know, people shouldn't do that. Right? Or sometimes, yeah, I do that sometimes, I, I should keep an eye out on that. And that might last for a day or two, right? But... Um, or we'll, we'll, we'll be a little more quote-unquote sincere of, yeah, he's right, that's, that's wrong. I think maybe um, I shouldn't, but that's really hard, right? And then suddenly the, that's really hard is the end of it, right? It's hard, game over, right? Um, this could have been her reaction, but to acknowledge that he says something right and just move on if she wanted, but she didn't, right? When she found out the truth, she acted on it, right? This is worthy of praise and emulation. She didn't just take it and, and meditate on it and just keep doing what she was doing. As we find out, she ended up dying a martyr. Then if we look at our Lord, right? Then we can take this from the positive approach of what did our, our Lord do? Obviously, He doesn't make mistakes. From the Samaritan woman, we can learn from the wrong and the right, but our Lord didn't mess up. One, the Lord took a route against all traditions to go see this woman. Right? He's going against all customs, all of the social protocols to do it. One, it was wrong to see a Samaritan. Two, it was wrong to meet a woman. To have this intimate dialogue by the well was an absolute no. Right? This might even be why the disciples like freaked out. Or like, no, 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 no. You do a lot of socially unacceptable things and we're not going to sit around for this one. Right? Like, we'll get food. Um, so they, <laughs> they take off and, and, and come back and like, what is he doing? Right? But he's, he's sitting with a Samaritan, sitting with a woman Samaritan at that, and he touched her stuff. Right, He said, give me to drink. Because in touching her stuff, he's now ritually unclean. Right? So like, that's something on every level. Right? He, he broke every single 
um, social norm, he's going to see this woman where she is, right? He's meeting her at the state where she's at. He's not saying, when she's here, I'll talk to her, right? When she learns this, that's when I'll have the conversation with her, right? He's going to her exactly where she's at. In other words, our Lord becomes even a beggar, right? Which is very moving. He's asking her to feed him. He's asking her to give him water. And it's a big deal that the Lord of creation is at the mercy of his creation, right? He's allowing himself to be subject to her will, um, and not just from anybody, from his enemy, right? Like if of all people to be waiting the favor from, the least you're going to expect it from is your so-called enemy. And there's a certain imagery to be seen here in coming to the well for water and for life and finding it, right? Jacob, that well that they're at was by tradition Jacob's well. That's why she says, our father Jacob built this well, right? And Jacob met his wife by the well, right? There's, there's a history of, of, of water and, and success and water and, 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 and gifts and of, of success. Um, Isaac's wife is found by the well. Joseph was buried under that well um, and he found his wife there. Um, so there's an idea that blessing comes from the water, right? So there's a reason why our Lord is, is choosing the well um, as his, his, his meeting point. Second, he's tired, right? He was weary on his route, and yet even in his fatigue, he doesn't stop doing his good works. Um, he's tired and he's hot, right? Like both are, are happening. Um, like we said, he's speaking publicly with a woman, he's touching her stuff, and he's going to use, as we'll see, a woman of ill repute to send his message. Right? Our Lord looks at people completely differently right, than we do. Right? He didn't say, let me go get uh, the governor, right? let me get the chief of the temple. He's like, no, bring me the harlot. She's perfect. Right? Because he knows that the, the converted harlot is going to have no ego. Right? She knows who she is. She's not going to be like, oh no, no, let me tell you how I know the truth. It's, it's me. Right? Whereas like, the governor will be seen as advantageous. It becomes, I'm using someone, it loses its, its purity. And our Lord doesn't have futile discussions. I want to choose the word stupid, but I won't. Um, he doesn't rejoin her, um, for example, when she says, like, your people say the well is over here. He could have engaged in the most useless debate, right? Are you this? Are you that? Are you Monophysite? Are you Dophysite? Are you this? Are you Tikin? Are you, like, all this stuff? Like, he's like, I'm not going to go there, right? He doesn't waste his time with that. He could have said, well, you deserve it because you people are so messed up. Right, which was true. <laughs> Actually, on some level, it was true. Right, but he doesn't go there. Instead, our Lord directs her without dispute to the truth. Right, the truth is the most important thing. She keeps on arguing or avoiding, but he compassionately, compassionately but firmly, right, teaches the truth um, in love. And the truth brings out the darkness because the truth causes confession. Right, being seen what the light is. Right? You become exposed to your darkness. So, a few things to learn from him. One, our Lord is not as judgmental as us. Right? We're extremely judgmental. Right? Not only did he actively pursue a woman living in sin to talk to her, but he didn't even approach her with an attitude of, you're lucky, I'm here to save you. Right? He didn't come at her with anything like that to justify why he's in this um, position. Um, or here's one of your last chances for salvation, right? There was no condescension, 
There's no disdain for her or her situation. He didn't even tell her off for not being perfectly respectful, right, towards him. Um, how often do we do that, right? Where it'll be like, I'm upset with you, okay, but here's your one chance to make things right, right? And you should consider yourself lucky. I didn't even need to, to let you have this chance, right? That's something we often do. How many of us think of ourselves as being in a better place than someone else? And how many of us avoid outreaching someone because of feeling like that person is not like us, right? Which is sometimes code for not worthy of my time or attention. Second, he didn't hide the truth from her. He didn't say, she can't handle this, as we said early. She's still in the state of sin, I can't tell her. No, he has this theological discussion um, with her. Sometimes in the service, right, or in our Christianity, not just in the service, um, we treat people who are doing the quote-unquote big sins really differently from everyone else, right? We see as what they're doing as being a, a worse um, sin. If we hear someone is living in sin, we might be very cautious around them. We might refrain from saying certain things that we believe to be true for fear of how it may or may not be received. But this means we don't see sinners as normal people who are doing wrong things, just like the rest of us. Sometimes at school or at work, we'll behave in a way that matches the will or the culture of others, even when it's wrong, because we are worried about how other people will perceive it. How many of us don't want to say our position about things to friends or others for fear it would offend them? That means that I don't value the truth if I do this. It means that I'm not convinced that it's true. If I pretend not to have an opinion about something, it means that I don't care that opinion is true. I'm not saying walk around spewing out opinions, but if I'm actively refraining, right, from saying something that I believe, it means that I am worried about saying what I'm saying. Why is that? Is it because I care more about the praise of men than God, or is it because I don't believe what I'm saying to actually be true? I'm not saying, like I said, to yell your opinions at everyone, but definitely intentional hiding means you're encouraging darkness, which leads to see what we learn from Christ, that the truth is illuminating. Okay, God is the truth. Rather than try and hide the truth, speak the truth in love, just like he did. He said what was true, because it was true, in spite of the situation. Only he did it lovingly, right? He didn't beat someone over the head with it. He simply proclaimed it to be true. And he actively made sure that she felt safe. He actively made sure that she felt heard and understood, right? We don't see a dialogue where he says that, but if he didn't, the conversation would have went anywhere, should have shut down, right? If she didn't feel safe in his presence, having his dialogue, it would have ended very quickly. Whatever it was he was doing, she felt perfectly safe um, to have this dialogue. She would have said, I don't want to talk about this, let alone with the Jew, um, and leave, but she didn't. He spoke the truth um, in love. Um, fourth, don't worry, there's only five. Um, Accept people and work with them where they are at. The Lord didn't come at the Samaritan woman expecting her to be at saintly status. He came to her at the well in the midst of her sin and spoke to her about real things. Positivity and truth build people up. If you think your spouse should be perfect and you deal with her at that level, you will only be angry all the time because she's not perfect, right? Neither are you. Um, not to mention, like we said, you're not perfect. If you're angry with your child for not functioning at a level that you want, when the child doesn't even have the knowledge or capacity to function at that level, you will be angry and cruel. 
and you will create division. You're, you're not going to be satisfied. The list could go on. None of us are in a state of perfection, and when we see something wrong, we need to positively work toward perfection together, rather than beat one another over the head with whatever we see wrong. Right? We can't just sit there proclaiming it. Last is humility, as we alluded to at the beginning. Our Lord accepted to be a servant. He accepted to be in need. He accepted to be vulnerable, even, like we said, with the so-called en enemy. He entered a land where he might get abused. He meets with a woman in spite of the possibility of him losing his reputation. He lets her serve him. He lets her get to choose whether to serve him or not. He lets her choose what to talk about. He lets her confess willingly rather than through coercion. He could have forced all of the above and it would have been his right. He's completely entitled to demand all of the above, and yet he didn't. He could have also drawn his own water. He could have brought his own, right? He could have miraculously brought it up and saying, look what I can do, right? Look at what you're missing out on. But he didn't do any of these things, right? He allowed her to have these choices. He allowed himself to be lesser. We need to do this. We need to deny our so-called rights to authority, to praise, to honor, to respect, to all the things we think we are, that are due to us for the sake of one thing, truth and love, right? Truth and love are pretty much synonymous as one meditates on them. Our Lord wanted her to know Him because He is the truth. So He accepted to be lesser in order to bring her to that truth. He was denying Himself and His glory and His majesty and His, his rights for one thing only, which is to bring her to the truth. He didn't do it for glory. He didn't assert authority. He wanted all people to know him. This encounter, the encounter with this kind of person is an encounter with Christ. Right? And an encounter with Christ causes conversion. The spirit that's within us, that's in all human beings, baptized or not, everyone has a human spirit. When it recognizes God, something in it becomes alive. Something in it responds to this because it was created in the image and likeness of God. Whether diseased or healthy, it longs for him but also knows its state. The Lord engulfs it with love and care and healing, and if the spirit is willing, um, it changes the conduct of that person. This is why each of you must encounter the Lord, and why I must encounter the Lord. The woman, in spite of her negatives, in spite of her shortcomings, in spite of anything wrong, was converted and changed. This woman brought a whole village to see him proclaiming a simple truth. She just said a fact, right? He told me all that I had done. Right? That's the message of the Samaritan woman. Right? She just proclaims a fact that happened. She lost the shame of her status, the shame of her sin, the shame of her reputation because of the marvel, the joy at meeting the Lord. And because of her, the whole town was converted. The whole town was converted out of season. Right? It wasn't even the time yet for, for the, the Samaritans to come. Right? And yet, they were coming as a whole town. This woman is named Saint Fotini. Right? And she would eventually not only preach to the Samaritans, but everywhere she could. Um, and she was so convicted and convinced by her encounter with the Lord that she also died for it um, as a martyr. Um, may the Lord grant us to see him and to meet him, that we have hearts and spirits willing and wanting to know the truth so that we can be liberated from captivity, darkness, and the isolation of sin into the joy that can only be found in the light and glory be to our God forever and ever. Amen.